what we try and do is we provide uh, models and information on the decision points that we think are important from a partnership standpoint. Things like on an ongoing basis, how are we going to value shares and what are the implications of our valuation methodology? What should even be included in that valuation methodology? Things like how do we support new shareholders entering into the practice? Is that and into the real estate, should I say, is that something that we provide some sort of internal financing for, or is that something that they should go out and finance externally? And in both cases, what would that look like as the investment evolves uh, from inception? And then exactly the same questions asked on the buyout side. If we're looking to create a structure where we're buying out physician owners at retirement, what is a what are the manageable uh, variables in there that will improve the outcomes to the group and make this a sustainable plan? This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. In this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, I interview James Winchester, Principal and Lead Financial Strategist at CMAC Partners. CMAC exclusively works with physicians that want to own the real estate where they practice. CMAC began with sourcing financing for physician-to-owned real estate. Now, in addition to financing services, they also develop ownership structures that allow clinicians to own different ownership amounts in different sites and allows for ownership structures to change throughout the life cycle of a clinician's career. I'm glad to have met James, and I hope you enjoy the interview. James, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thanks for having me, Tricia. So as I said, I'm, I'm really glad I found CMAC Partners. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit of the background of your company and how you guys got started? Sure. So uh, we work in the space of uh, assisting independent physician groups with their real estate financing transactions. Um, we started approximately 20 years ago and we uh, operated a little differently back then. We actually um, were working with a pretty unique product where we would go out and get variable rate demand bonds and went to banks and were able to get them backed by letters of credits from banks. And in doing so, we're able to get physician groups some you know, superior options in terms of their financing that, that they were, than they were getting, sorry, from commercial lenders. Um, 2007, 2008 hit, and CMAC as an organization really had to pivot. Actually, our, our name CMAC comes from Capital Market Access Company, which was originated because of the activities that we were doing in the, uh, in the bond market. But what we realized um, working with independent physician groups was that they were an extremely and are an extremely um, sought after 
asset class uh, for, for banks to be involved with. Banks enjoy having relationships with the, those kind of groups. And when the bonds that we were securing for these groups became illiquid, those banks came back to us and said, hey, we're really liking the uh, types of groups that you're bringing to us. We will be super competitive if you continue um, with those kind of groups and um, offer uh, you know, better than market uh, commercial real estate financing rates. So that was the transition that we made um, and continued offering that kind of support to independent physicians. We're now in a situation where we've uh, got over 300 uh, clients uh, that we've worked with over those 17 years, uh, which we are very grateful for. And we found, interestingly, that uh, independent physician groups, as they own their real estate, they often have different issues than uh, you know, other types of real estate owners. And that has allowed us to create some solutions around how physician groups can own uh, sustainably their real estate assets um, and make something that is fair and equitable for all and not end up in situations where there's discord between the real estate and the practice, which we've seen over the years can be a real turnoff to groups in actually ever pulling the trigger and going and owning uh, the properties that they operate out of. So that's uh, the, the, the pathway that we have kind of gone down as an organization. And you, you guys offer, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you, you offer separate solutions for ownership structures in the practice versus the real estate? So we're concentrated on uh, the real estate side. Um, everything that we do as an organization, though, even though we're real estate focused, is done in order to strengthen the practice. And what the, the way that we see it uh, is if we can create alignment between the objectives of the practice and the real estate entity, we can actually provide a superior investment to those physician owners because we end up transitioning the investment from a pure real estate investment where they're carrying the types of investment risks that are common in real estate to more of an investment in the practice, a real estate investment in the practice, because ultimately their risk is defined by the practice's ability to continue to make its lease payments. Um, so, so we really look at the investment slightly differently if we can get get groups to create good alignment between those practice and real estate uh, objectives. Well, so when I um, get involved, they typically do it backwards where they find the property and then they try to figure out how to structure it within their partnership. So it seems to me that you guys provide, hey, this is the structure of the partnership based on the you know business objectives of the company. And then once they agree on that, so that doesn't hold up the deal, then they go up and then they go find the property. Is that sometimes how that happens? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think most physician groups don't treat their real estate investments, uh, you know, in the way that we, in the way that I just described the real, how the real estate investment can be structured uh, at inception. Most of the time it will be, you know, a, a practice uh, is looking to expand its space and a subset of physicians go out and decide, Hey, this is a good investment opportunity. Let's own this, uh, this building. And then over time they grow, they evolve, 
And another subset decides, well, I like a piece of what those other physicians got. Let's do our own deal somewhere else. And then suddenly a group then, you know, merges with, with this group and they have legacy real estate ownership. And suddenly everybody sits around in a boardroom at some point and says, well, what are we going to do with all of these components? We haven't, we, we haven't had the ability to optimize our network. If we make decisions, we're going to disproportionately affect one subset of the physician group relative to the other. What should we do? Um, we have experienced over the years of navigating that situation of aligning the ownership um, of the real estate with the practice such that when you're making decisions that affect the real estate, they're also uh, affecting the practice. So I would kind of agree with uh, exactly, exactly what you said. Oftentimes when groups get into a real estate investment, it isn't carried out with the foresight that this is something that could be uh, directly related to improving the practice, but rather a separate uh, investment. And that can often, because these are uh, assets that groups hold on to for a long period of time, that, that might be fine at the time that the uh, investment starts. But by the time new partners have come into the practice and some of the physicians have retired, it suddenly becomes something very difficult to navigate. And you guys have, you've put together structures. I think I, I read this and again, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but there you put together structures where physicians, they can move through their career to retirement. Plus you can add the new, new physicians that may join a practice that want to participate in the investment as well. You've put some structures together for that to happen. Exactly right. So one of the things that we like to try and point out early to groups is that for these kind of properties and of course, I'm sure this comes up all the time in, in everything that you do, Trisha, but in these kind of properties, the value is driven by the lease. Mm-hmm. And you know, most of these buildings without a lease in place are worth a small fraction of what they are with a lease in place. And ultimately, for most groups that we work with, we see it important to align the individuals that are driving the value of that investment, those being the partners that are paying the rents who are in the practice, who are practicing, and those that are receiving the benefits of the real estate ownership. So what does that mean? It means that most of the time we're looking to create a structure that allows for fluidity as the underlying practice evolves, the real estate ownership evolves with it. And that carries some some challenges because it generally... Uh, is a situation where value is increasing over time through the repayment of debt, hopefully the appreciation of the building. So there are certain tools that we use and uh, options that we provide to groups to say, well, have you thought about it this way? And is there a way that we can revitalize or um, reinvigorate the investment such that you can once again get those physicians into the real estate ownership that uh, have perhaps been prohibited from that investment because the equity in the building has increased so drastically. Well, and I get the calls sometimes too, where they they need my help because the practice they're for lack of it, but they're they're breaking up. That like some physicians want to go one way and some don't, and 
sometimes it has to do with some want to retire and, and some want to still um, practice pretty actively, but then they get stuck because they've got this piece of real estate that they own along with the practice and they don't know how to divide one from the other. And they don't necessarily want somebody that's no longer in the practice to be owning the real estate. Sure. And to, to, to ask most of the time, it goes back to the operating agreement. You know, we've ended up, I think, learning a lot from our clients. And the reason that we found ourselves learning this kind of expertise and providing these solutions is because groups are often trying to solve these, these items when they're going out and sourcing financing. Uh, there's some kind of structural change that's occurring. And we've realized that actually some of the best times to address these issues are when you have access to capital and, and financing. I like to think that, you know, we're not a one size fits all uh, group. And, you know, even though we don't work directly, for example, in assisting groups with selling their real estate, sometimes, you know, just like the scenario you mentioned, sometimes that can be the most practical method of the group being able to move forwards. And I think that we uh, certainly, you know, try and provide that kind of advice to our clients when we think that uh, it's necessary. But back to my, you know, original, original point, I think most of the time in these scenarios, it's driven by the operating agreement. Most of the time when we get involved, especially with real estate investments that have started a number of years ago, the operating agreement can be antiquated and not provide anywhere near the kind of um, provisions that are needed uh, for the group. And that can be an expensive fix to carry out retroactively. Do you have attorneys on staff at your company or do you, they come with attorneys that you work with to put these structures together? Generally groups uh, come with attorneys. I think um, what we try and do is we provide uh, models and information on the decision points that we think are important from a partnership standpoint. Things like on an ongoing basis, how are we going to value shares and what are the implications of our valuation methodology? What should even be included in that valuation methodology? Things like how do we support new shareholders entering into the practice? Is that and into the real estate, should I say, is that something that we provide some sort of internal financing for, or is that something that they should go out and finance externally? And in both cases, what would that look like as the investment evolves uh, from inception? And then exactly the same questions asked on the buyout side. If we're looking to create a structure where we're buying out physician owners at retirement, what is a what are the manageable uh, variables in there that will improve the outcomes to the group and make this a sustainable plan? So, in answer to your question, I think that our role when groups are going through that process is is to help to demonstrate what options are available and then fuel the group in understanding. Well, when they have their conversations with their attorneys, which sometimes we're involved with. They can go to them and say, this is what we want. This is our roadmap. Now let's work on the legalities um, of, of that, those particular decision points. So how do, how do uh, physician groups find you? Because 
is it more referral based or how does like a group get introduced to you usually for the like a first time, not a repeat business? Sure. I'd say mostly uh, referral based. We've um, been longtime members of a, a number of different conferences, actually, and probably about 40 percent of our business is in orthopedics. Uh, and we've been a longtime uh, member of Ortho Forum, for example, uh, and and generally, you know, when we get into a particular market, as you mentioned, uh, from a referral standpoint, uh, we we like to think that our involvement often spreads like wildfire, and and uh, has afforded us opportunities with other different specialties, usually from a pioneering orthopedic group that we've worked with. And where do you work geographically? Where's your focus? We are nationwide, so we've actually, even though I'm located in. Uh, sunny Winter Park, Florida, uh, and that is uh, really where the rest of our company is located. We've done three transactions in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, so we really are coast to coast. That's fantastic. And let me ask you, what is the largest physician group, um, the number of members that you've worked with? It's a good question. I would say probably the largest is uh, you know a large independent orthopedic group. Uh, somewhere in the region of 300 physician providers uh, is probably around the, the largest. I would say we have been fortunate to um, work with a, a few different multi-specialty groups, which are pretty large as well. But uh, I would say orthopedics probably still just uh, just beats them in terms of their overall size. So do you have to go and, and put a presentation together for 300 physicians or do you, or is there some senior members that kind of take the lead that you work with? I think that, just trying to figure out how you work through this. Cause when you present, like when you're presenting to sell a building to a group of physicians, you usually start with all of them and, you know, they all have to raise their hand and a vote. And then, you know, it, it sort of goes to a couple of, of the leaders of, you know, that are taking the charge that go forward. So I'm wondering how you get through that. Sure. I, I think uh, different groups have different structures. And, and uh, I think as, as the group gets larger, um, the usually, weirdly, the audience gets smaller. <laughs> um, so, so we generally find, you know, for those real large groups, you maybe have an executive committee uh, that will be perhaps two or three physicians and maybe an exec that are, are really... Um, given the authority to make the the decision ultimately for the group, so you know, really, what we're trying to do uh, is create something that is palatable for as many of those physician owners as possible. We do end up in some scenarios where you know, I, there's a couple of times where we've had real complicated deals where there are you know, multiple different uh, facilities, multiple different properties that are owned by subsets. And within those subsets, the ownership is disparate between each of the members, which means we end up running some pretty complex models to understand, well, if we bring all of those together and put all of those groups into a holding company, what does everybody end up with? And that can be something very important to do collectively with a group because everybody understandably wants to be treated fairly and equitably and wants to make sure that the value that they've built over time is being 
appropriately allocated to this new investment vehicle that they're going into. So we have had uh, some scenarios where we're presenting that kind of structure to 80, 90 uh, physicians at, at once. Um, I would say that, you know, it's it, it can be a challenging transaction and um, it means that when we're not unused to uh, being on the phone with physicians, you know, pre and post clinic uh, <laughs> and at the weekends to talk through the you know specific outcomes that they're interested in, because they, as I, as I mentioned, they want to make sure, you know, that that they are being treated right through the whole process. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you feel that you guys provide a solution and do you have the conversations with physicians where that almost relieves them from having to make such a choice where they can see that they can invest in real estate and have the passive income and economic benefit as well as continue to practice medicine and not have the hassle of having to own and operate and all the other stuff that comes along that, you know, that you have to do when you own a piece of real estate, you, you have to take care of it. You have to meet with vendors. You have to you know, do property management. So the the question is, do we get physicians who are who who through our involvement feel more comfort level associated with investing in the real estate from which they occupy out of or if they're able to have economic benefit of, of owning real estate, especially the real estate that they occupy while practicing medicine and be able to have basically both. Um, do you feel like you guys pro provide those solutions where you can solve a lot of the hassle of where they can be real estate investors and practicing physicians at the same time? Sure. Um, I think that a lot of uh, you know what we end up doing is educational for many physician groups. Uh, you know that at some point they may sit around a board table and say, "Hey, we want to. We we've had enough of paying rent." We want to own the property from which we're operating out of, but don't really think about it much more than that in terms of the investment that they are getting themselves into. And it's usually dictated by, you know, a couple of physicians within a wider group. It's, you know, it's not necessarily uh, something that everybody is on board with straight away. and we think it's really important that when groups get together and make that kind of decision that the, you know, the majority, not necessarily all, because sometimes it can be nigh on impossible to get everybody involved, but the majority of the physicians are on board with the investment. And because of that, we, we often put together an educational program to take those individuals, you know, everybody within the group through, well, what are you actually investing in here? And I, I kind of would go back to my, my first point that I, I think that for, you know, owner-occupied properties um, where tenant and owner are really one and the same, um, the investment parameters, the risk profile is completely different to a pure real estate investment. Um, and I, I think that we have seen over the years when, when we you know, broaden the investment group and get more of the individual physicians to understand through that educational process, 
it has made them aware that they want to, you know, further that experience because it generally is a positive experience. You know, we know almost no groups that um, have invested in their their real estate and then uh, ended up in a state of bankruptcy. I mean, it, it, it occurs occasionally, but in comparison to the types of risks that uh, individuals go into when they're investing in third-party pieces of property, it's usually uh, not quite not quite the same level. And the other factor is uh, you're usually the, the controller of your own destiny being the tenant that's paying the rent, which is driving that real estate investment. So, yeah, I would say we certainly do see this as an opportunity that physicians can earn, you know, passive income alongside their ordinary income, well, which is which is terrific. And in doing so, you know, we see it as a furthering of the uh, furthering investment of the practice. Another interesting, you know, part of this is for uh, you know, 99% of independent physician groups, they earn their income through a year and then they distribute all of it at the end of the year, which they you know, should do if they uh, are able to and there's no financial covenants because um, it, it allows them to pay the least amount of taxes on their income and those kind of things. But in doing that from an entity standpoint, there's no wealth generation component. What real estate offers those independent physician groups is another ancillary revenue stream where there is wealth generation. And so often, unfortunately, we see that you know the physicians within a group who are very high earners don't necessarily make the best decisions with their income. Fortunately, real estate being illiquid can sometimes be one of those investment opportunities on the passive side that will be fruitful at the time of retirement and will be something that can carry them home and, and drive uh, wealth for them over the course of their career. So I think that there can be a lot of benefits associated with it if you're, as you mentioned, marrying up that passive and ordinary income stream. Yeah, and and so you you primarily just work with the owner-occupied real estate. Correct, Exclus- okay. exclusively actually. Okay, all right, great. Well, this has been interesting. I think uh, I'll be keeping your number pretty close at hand. <laughs> <laughs> I like them to solve these problems ahead of time because uh, doing yeah. them during the deal is, is often challenging. Uh, so we're going to move into the, the Q&A to get, a little, to get to know you a little bit. Sure. All right. So what was your first job? My first job. So I was actually uh, trained as an engineer. My undergrad was in mechanical engineering. So uh, I worked for a year at General Motors and I, I think I had a, a pretty tough task actually looking back on it because uh, I was working uh, in, in the manufacturing line over in Europe um, and uh, working as a quality and reliability engineer. So we used to get all of this data about how some of GM's vehicles were failing on the road and it would be our job to go into the line and try to implement changes uh, to the process such that those uh, defects such that those um, those claims were not, uh, you know, they, they were patched up and they were not received in subsequent vehicles. And that was a challenging process because it usually involved adding time to a 
line worker's job who wasn't particularly interested in doing that and certainly not from a young gentleman carrying a clipboard explaining uh, exactly what needed to be done such that we were providing the best the best possible quality vehicles to our customers and so <laughs> it was safe to say that that experience put me off engineering uh, it, at least in that capacity and then I ended up coming over to the states uh, a couple of years later uh, to do my MBA and that's how I ended up stumbling upon CMAC. Oh, very nice. What would you be doing for a living if you weren't uh, doing what you are now? I think that probably some some kind of uh, consulting um, line of work. I very much enjoy the educational aspect and providing analysis to the groups that we work with and then bringing that analysis to their attention to create tangible solutions. I think that, you know, whether it be in this industry or, or outside, that would be um, where I would imagine I would end up working and what I would imagine, I imagine I would end up doing if I wasn't working in this area. Very nice. What are, who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? Sure. So um, I probably most recently, I don't know if you've heard of this gentleman, but a guy by the name of Sam Harris, I listen to a lot of his podcasts, which are, you know, a whole host of different topics that I kind of find interesting um, I've just started reading uh, a book called Tribes because uh, of some of the things. It was actually recommended to me because of some of the things that we have going on uh, with our organization and, and some of the ways that we're trying to cultivate um, different groups within this niche that we work in. So um, I've just embarked on, on reading that. So I'm kind of excited to see what, it, what it's like. But there are a couple of things that I've been uh looking at recently and, and pieces of information that I've been getting, uh, which is probably pretty aside from this particular industry. <laughs> personal, personal stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? So I uh, actually played soccer the whole way through my youth. And uh, I played a couple of years collegiately uh, over in the US, which was part of the reason why I was fortunate enough to come over here. Um, so I still like to get my cleats on every now and again, and that I see is a really good way for me to decompress. Um, and I guess because of that as well, I've remained pretty active. So uh, I'm one of those people that tries to get out and do some form of physical exercise, you know, a number of different times a week. Otherwise, I drive my colleagues crazy. <laughs> uh, so that's probably my best self-care. <laughs> So my husband is Brazilian. And when we first met, he played soccer recreationally six days a week. It was wow. crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was good. I mean, that was his, his, uh, you know, mental release, but I have to ask you, so what's your favorite soccer team? I'm a Man United fan, Okay, which is um, pretty bad actually. Cause I'm uh, like two and a half, three hours away from uh, Manchester is where I live in London, which probably doesn't seem that far to you but that's like half of the UK. <laughs> so all of my friends kind of, as I've grown up, tease me and say that I'm what they describe as a glory hunter by um, not supporting a local team. What's your local team? What would I'm, be? I'm closest to a team called uh, Tottenham Hotspur. Okay. And those that, you know, in your, in your audience that know Tottenham Hotspur will know exactly why I'm not a supporter of this. Of theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think leaders are born or trained? I think 
my experience has been that leaders come in all shapes and sizes. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that uh, it, it isn't something that can be cultivated over time. Um, I think that um, my experience of leaders, I found easiest, you know, represented through the sports teams that I've played in and then seen how they've, they've transferred into kind of working life. Um, but I think, you know, some people lead by example, some people lead by the, the motivation um, that they provide to others. And I think that that resonates differently with different people. Um, so in my experience, it's, it's probably a little bit of both, but certainly not something that can be, uh, that cannot be learned. Yeah. Constant training and learning, I think. Absolutely. Well, James, thank you for this interview and your time. I appreciate it. No, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.